Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm Daniel. And this is Aaron. Welcome to Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Exodus chapters 35 through 40 and Leviticus chapters 1, 16 and 19. We've brought our good friend Daniel on to the video today. He's been a longtime collaborator and worker at Book of Mormon Central. He's done a lot of research around the tabernacle, around priestly vestments. In fact, he's designed all this. So we've brought a replica of the priest Aaron so we can talk through the priestly vestments and the work that would go on in the tabernacle. So you're in for a real treat today. Yeah, this is, a, this is a unique opportunity. For those of you who aren't already aware of this, Daniel Smith, he, as Taylor said, he works here at Book of Mormon Central, and he has worked on a variety of fun projects. Uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with Messages of Christ, the YouTube channel, Daniel started that. That is now part of Book of Mormon Central, so we would encourage you to check that out. Okay, so as we jump into today's uh, set of scripture chapters, you'll find, if you just open up your Old Testament and read from Exodus 35 through 40, just read them chapter by chapter, many of you might walk away from that reading scratching your head and saying, now what exactly were we supposed to get out of that? Because... Why is it even important? And Why is it in the scriptures and why should I study it? Why should I care? Um, I hope if we do our job right today, then as you as you walk away from, from this episode, you're going to want to go into those scriptures and, and read them more carefully and mark them up however you prefer to mark them up, because there are some incredibly beautiful symbols and, and connections here to the Savior being the ultimate high priest of our, of our souls as we move forward. So, let's jump in, Daniel, chapter 35. For me, it, it's interesting because you have the fact that in Exodus you have 13 chapters that are devoted to the tabernacle, the clothing of the high priest, and then you have a whole bunch of additional chapters later on, even in the book of Hebrews, that is surrounded or based on the tabernacle. And if you don't actually understand it, I mean, in essence, one-third of the entire book of Exodus is the tabernacle and the clothing of the high priest. And so it can be difficult to kind of understand the importance of it, but as you look for Christ, that's where I find the, the significance of it. There's so much power in it. And also what I've found is that, to me, this is one of the best temple preps that somebody can do. I mean, there may be other ways that, that other people have found, but for me, is it focuses on Christ and talks about him, and that it also helps us to better understand our own endowment. Absolutely. The fact that the temple is such a symbolic um, set of ordinances that take place there, well, everything that we're going to cover today in the tabernacle is a type or a shadow and a, a symbol pointing us forward to that great and last sacrifice of Jesus Christ and, and his, all of his roles that he takes. And so, if we understand the tabernacle, I totally agree. It becomes a, a beautiful overlay for our temple worship to make that more meaningful. So let's jump in. Chapter 35. It opens, interestingly, not with 
the tabernacle directly or anything associated with the tabernacle, but with the Sabbath day. So the Lord re reiterates this, this commandment. Look at verse 2. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be to you an holy day, a Sabbath of, of rest to the Lord. Whosoever doeth work therein shall be put to death. I, I guess we can be grateful that we don't live back then. The, the, the penalties for breaking certain laws are a little different today. And, and if I can just say, I find it interesting that this is connected directly to the tabernacle. And I, I find that interesting because, in essence, it's saying, like, you may be building the sanctuary, but you are to honor the Sabbath while you do that. Yes. It's that important. Which is fascinating because the, the epistle to the Hebrews, as you've already alluded to later on, it's going to refer to the Sabbath day, and it's going to refer a lot to the tabernacle, and it's, it's using language such as, therefore, labor to enter into this rest. It's kind of interesting if you think about labor to enter into a rest. If any of you have spent any time in, in Israel or if you have friends who are practicing Jews in any way, you see the, the excitement that they have on Friday night as the sun's getting ready to set. They'll dance, they'll sing, they'll, they are jubilant, they can't wait for the setting of the sun because that opens the Sabbath, and they labor diligently to enter into that Sabbath observance. They take that very seriously. And I think we have a lot that we could learn. Yeah, in that regard, as far as sanctifying and hallowing that day of the week and devoting it to the Lord and making it holy. Well, stop and think about that. Sabbath day, tabernacle, labor to enter into the rest of the Lord. Well, we're going to be talking about all kinds of things that they're going to be laboring on and working on so they can create this sense of coming into a place of rest. And the temple should feel like that to us as we enter in a place of rest where we can truly connect with heaven, which is pretty powerful in, in this context, putting those two things together. So then, the rest of, of chapter 35, he, Moses, in, starting in verse 4, says, Moses spake unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord, whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it, an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood and oil for the light and spices for anointing oil. And I could keep reading and keep reading and keep reading. What he's listing here are not common everyday items that everybody would just have lying around. These would be the treasures maybe in some cases family heirlooms that are passed down. What's the significance? Well, I mean, it, for one thing, it's interesting that it, it says, I don't remember the exact verse that it talks about, that these items were brought from Egypt. They were kind of some of the things that they brought out of Egypt. And so it's, it's the family heirlooms, but it's also like, it's, they're, they're in slavery. They now have the wealth of Egypt that is given to them and now they're giving it up. And so it's, it's almost this aspect of like, well, we deserve the wealth, and yet now we're taking it and giving it to the Lord. They had been in slavery and in bondage, 
and now they're actually using it to bless everybody's lives and in particular to worship the Lord. Which, by the way, as a, as a side note here before we move forward, isn't that fascinating how, how this works? Whenever you, whenever you make an offering to the Lord, whenever you put something on the symbolic altar and give it to God, I can't picture a scene up in the heavens where, where our Heavenly Father is watching these offerings come in where he's, he's rubbing his hands together gleefully thinking, oh, look at all of these things that I'm getting, because he holds worlds without number in his hand. He holds this world in his hand. All the riches are already there. It's all his. He's not looking at the offering thinking, oh, look what they're giving me. These offerings, whether it be gold or silver or the precious uh, cloth or any of these other elements that they're sacrificing and giving to the Lord, it's not the objects that matter. It's the fact that they're willing to part with things that mean a great deal to them that are, quite frankly, worth a lot of money and, and maybe even some power and prestige, and they're willing to give that to the Lord. And the, the image I have in, in my mind is of the angels looking down at these offerings being made, smiling at the hearts that are being um, opened up to the Lord and saying, I love this gold, I love this silver, I love these precious things, but Lord, I love thee more than I love them, so I'm going to give them to thee. And you'll notice God doesn't take those items, and through Moses and Aaron and the, the craftsmen, he doesn't take those things from them for his benefit, he turns them into things that are going to be used for the benefit of all of the children of Israel. So he takes something that is earthly, mortal, fleeting, that when they die, they have no claim on it anymore, and he turns those elements into blessings that can become eternal. So it is with our tithes and offerings today, where God, God returns with blessings upon our head in exchange for us being willing to offer up that which is, quite frankly, mortal and fleeting and passing, our, our money and, and our, even our time in, in some cases. So now, he, in the rest of chapter 35, it talks about how Bezaliel in verse 30 and Aholiab, remember those two from our last lesson, these two craftsmen that God has uniquely prepared to help build the tabernacle, the instruments, the implements, the, the fabrics, all of that, they're reinstituted as, yep, these are the ones to, to do the, the designing and the crafting with some others to help them. And that brings us into chapter 36, where the people have been making their contributions. And that's where we start talking about the tabernacle, and I think it would be helpful to first kind of go over the basic floor plan of the tabernacle, because that helps to kind of set the ground, because while there are some similarities with modern-day temples, there are so also are many differences. Yes, so some people would think of, of for instance, the Temple of Solomon or the temp Herod's Temple, the second temple in Jerusalem that was there when Jesus was visiting Jerusalem, and we would think, oh, the temple, this quiet, peaceful place where I can go for revelation and to connect with the Lord. 
Not so. It was not a quiet, peaceful place. Smelly, blood, noise, lambs bleeding, and... Yeah, it, this, this was a, a basically a, a slaughterhouse for a lot of animals, and, and at a festival time of year, thousands and thousands of animals, if, if we listen to Josephus and his numbers. So here you have a basic outline of the tabernacle. You have the eastern, so we'll put this with east here, the eastern gate, and then when you come through, just walk us through these elements here. So you've got the altar of sacrifice, then you've got the laver, then you've got the menorah here, then you've got the altar of incense and the table of showbread, and then the Ark of the Covenant. And technically this would be a little bit longer Long. in shape, but because um, you'd have this would be square. And in essence, what you've got here is you've got a progression because as you put, you, this is looking eastward. And that's really an important thing because if you think about the connection with the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve, when they are cast out, it says that they were cast out eastward. And so if you want to be able to return back into the presence of the Lord, you have to go west. And even the word repent in Hebrew means to turn around. And so you can almost imagine that Adam and Eve are leaving the presence of the Lord, and now they have to turn around, return, and go back in. And that's what we're learning here. And so this entire plan is, in essence, the plan of how to be able to walk back into the presence of the Lord through each of these different steps. And so every part is showing that. If we begin with the tabernacle overview as a, a beautiful template or, or a lens through which we could look at our, our modern temple worship, you have this idea of three layers, three degrees of glory even symbolized. You have the telestial kingdom being this outer courtyard representing mortal life. You have the holy place, a beautiful symbol of the terrestrial kingdom, and then beyond the veil, you have this symbol of the celestial kingdom, the very presence of God, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, er, uh, totally covered with gold inside and out, and on top of it, the mercy seat, representing the, the, the presence of God. And by the way, don't you love that they call it the mercy seat throughout scriptures instead of the justice seat? I, I like that that when you come through the tabernacle flow, through the veil, into the presence of God, I think we're all going to be kneeling and pleading for mercy on that occasion. So I, I just like that, that description. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I always like to talk about when I go through the tabernacle, and I've, I've done many tours that we actually had a, at BYU, they had this, and there's been several camps, and is to take people through and kind of show them each of the steps throughout this. And so you would first come to the gate, and the gate would be uh, made out of red, blue, purple, and white. And each of those colors are very expensive to make, in particular the red and, or sorry, the purple and the blue. And so this would be very, very expensive and costly fabric that they would be using. And for me, one of the things that I love about this is you'll notice um, the clothing of the high priest is 
out of the same fabric. And so they would actually have the red, blue, purple, and white, plus the gold. There is gold in, in the fabric of the clothing of the high priest. So it's, it's almost as if, because one of the titles that is given to Jesus Christ is that he's the great high priest. And so it's almost like he's standing here, and the door of the tabernacle also has the same fabric, and then the veil has the same fabric. So it's like Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who's represented by the colors, is standing at each of the main points of entrance that if we want to, before we even begin our journey back into the presence of the Lord, we first come to the gate, and that is where we then come in. And even in, in the Gospel of John, depending on what translation you use, Jesus says, I am the gate, or I am the door. The door in some cases. Yep. And so the very first thing, we go through the Savior. And then as we come in, we come to the altar of sacrifice. And the altar of sacrifice, uh, I have here these kind of visuals that I, that I often use when I'm doing the tabernacle uh, tours. They would, they would take their animal in, and as they're bringing the animal to the altar, they would tie the animal to the altar. And then it's interesting, who kills the animal in most situations? I mean, there are different types of sacrifices, so it's hard to say, like, in every situation, but in most situations, if the person is bringing the animal... It's the person who has to do that in many of the not sacrifices. The not the priest. So the person would first lay their hands upon the head of the animal, and that, many scholars say, would, is representing that it's symbolically transferring their sins to that animal. And then they take the knife, they put the pan under, and they slit the throat, catches the blood, and then the priest takes over from there. But that symbolism that the death of the animal is completely upon that person. It's not the priest who does it, it's the person. And think about the symbolism and the power of that when you are having to do that. Um, so they would take that and then they put the blood on different parts of the altar, the animal is burned. And depending on the type of sacrifice, because again, there's quite a few different types, uh, the, either the priest would, or it would be fully burned, the priest would eat it, or even the person would eat it. Mm -hmm. And I find that interesting that you have the symbol of, in essence, like a type of the sacrament, that because of the death, we now become at one with Christ and are able to commune or have a feast, have a meal, have a communal meal with the Savior, where we now are able to begin our journey back into the presence of the Lord. So, but we need to pause here because ancient sacrifice is so... It's, it's so foreign to us and quite frankly it's so distasteful to most of us today. We hear about this and, and we've grown up in a culture, most of us today, where you want meat, you go to the store, somebody else took care of, of processing the, the, the animal to the point where you can just buy the meat. Well, in antiquity, everybody would have been much more likely to have participated in these things. Um, you'll notice once we get to the New Testament that many people in, in that early Christian movement who largely were Jewish uh, people rooted in these traditions of the Old Testament, they're having a hard time letting go 
of some of these old practices that started here in Leviticus and ex Exodus so many 1500 years before that the, the epistle to the Hebrews, listen to this, chapter 10, verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So I think that's a really important thing to recognize is that this concept that it's not the blood, it's not the burning, it's not the animal, it's not the placing hands on the animal. None of that takes away sin. That's all a symbol to point us to the real thing or the real being who does take away our sin. Just like when a sacrament tree comes by you this Sunday and you take a little piece of bread, that bread doesn't cleanse you. That water doesn't cleanse you all by itself. Those are symbols to very tangibly and physically remind us of the body and the blood of he who does ultimately forgive us and he who does save us. So let's not get so excited about any of the symbols either in antiquity or in our modern day that we, we get stuck at the symbol and don't look at what the symbol is representing, which in all of these cases is Jesus Christ and the ultimate sacrifice that he performed for us. So the next thing that we have is the laver, and the laver is the place where the priests would ritually wash before they would basically do their different services in the temple. And um, I actually have a video on that that we'll show a couple of clips here, but it's fascinating for me because we don't really unfortunately have time to be able to go into these details, but I actually have a whole series of videos on the tabernacle, and one of them, the things that I love about this, is the connection between what happens at the laver. Um, they would take a horn of anointing oil, something like this, they would anoint the priest, they would clothe him with the clothing, depending on if it's the high priest or the normal priest, um, and then they would do something interesting, they'd put blood on the ear, on the thumb, on the toe, and again, we can't really go into all those details, but you think about all these symbols of blood and where you're putting it, and the significance of blood in general, of the symbol of the, the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the horn which can represent power, oil, all these different things, the, the anointing oil, the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, there's so much that can be done here, but we just can't go into that. So isn't that amazing, by the way, that you have, you have all these elements, that a priest comes in, there's people who make sacrifices here, and for him to do this stuff inside of the, the tent of the tabernacle, he has to first wash with water. Then he's clothed in special garments, and he's anointed, and now he can go in yeah. to the holy place. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is, is all of Israel was supposed to be able to go into the presence of the Lord, but because of their sin, because of their fear, the Lord said, I will have the high priest in particular, but also the priests that will go in your stead. So when they are then prepared, they've been washed, anointed, clothed in these clothing, these special clothing, they then are able to represent the people as if the people are going through the temple or through the tabernacle. So they would then go in, and as we talked about, they would go through a colored gate or door here, 
and then they would come in and you would have three pieces of furniture. You have the menorah, and the menorah, again, we can't really go into a lot of the details, but a, the Jewish tradition is that it represented a tree of life. And it even had almond buds and flowers all across it. So it's almost like, again, you think of Adam and Eve, they're leaving the Garden of Eden, and now they want to come back into the presence, and so the presence of the Lord. So this is symbolizing that progress. So they're coming back and they're passing the tree of life. And then you have the table of showbread, and on the table of showbread, you have 12 loaves. And the 12 loaves represent most likely the 12 tribes. And the priests are eating this on the Sabbath day, which would be Saturday for them. And you think about this connection that anytime you break bread, it's been talked about before in this, when you break bread, it can be a symbol of becoming at peace with your enemy. And we're all enemies with God because of our sins. And so as the priests who represent Israel on the Sabbath are breaking bread, it's almost as if all of Israel is there breaking bread and now being able to have this communal meal with the Lord. And again, you have communal meal here with the sacrifice. You have it here. And it's all connecting back to the atonement, the sacrament. It's so powerful because one of the other ways that they talk about this is the bread of the presence. It's this idea of being in the very presence of God, even though he's on the other side of a curtain. But you'll notice it's a curtain. It's not a concrete wall. It's not a mile away. You're in the presence, but there is that veil. You can sense the presence, the, the whisperings, the moving of, of God on the other side of the veil, and you're it's this symbolic sharing of the meal, not just with the other priest, but with God. It, you're in his presence. You've, you've come through the gates, through the sacrifice, symbolism of baptism. And by the way, isn't it, isn't it fun to see the elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ symbolically portrayed here in a, in a physical setting? I, I can't think of a better example for repentance than the altar of sacrifice, this idea of letting something die and be consumed and be purified in the fire of this altar, that, that to me is a beautiful symbol of repentance. And even though the priests didn't have this as a baptismal font in the tabernacle setting, I love that as a symbol of the purifying waters of baptism. And some of you would be saying, wait, what about, what about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that the first principle? Yeah, in my mind, this outer gate it's coming into the tabernacle, into the temple, is an act of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't check your faith at the door. You don't check your repentance at the altar. You keep bringing these things with you, the baptism symbolism, and then you enter in and you've got a beautiful symbol for the gift of the Holy Ghost and the sacrament, which then brings us to the altar of incense. Yeah, and on the altar of incense, uh, and, and I should mention, so I've got here some myrrh. The myrrh would be used, this is a tree sap, tree resin, and this would be used in the anointing oil. And then for the altar of incense, you have frankincense and some other spices that they would also burn. And this is also just tree sap, so you can see here. And they would burn that on the altar of incense. And I, I find it interesting that there's this connection. I mean, you have a kind of rectangle, but they're both square. 
they both have horns, four oh, horns. horns. They both um, have an offering that's placed on it. And this is just kind of my personal interpretation of this is that when we first come to the Lord, we have to offer ourselves onto the altar, so to speak. I mean, it's obviously through the Savior, but we're offering our sins. And it's not a very pleasant smell. It's not a pleasant thing. You have a dead body, body parts, hair that's burning up. But then as you begin to progress back into the presence of the Lord and you're almost to his presence, you now are offering a different type of sacrifice. It's a second altar where you're now offering a different type. And for me, this could represent, again, this is just my personal interpretation, is that the frankincense could represent a more sweet smell because it actually is very, very, very sweet. I, w I was kind of tempted to burn some here, but it's, it's a really, really pleasant smell. And so for me, I look and I say, we have one sacrifice that we offer that's bitter. We have another one that is more sweet and it could be our time and our talents that we're offering to the Lord. So it's a different type of sacrifice that we're offering as we continue on that progression back to God. Now, now many of you watching have probably already made this connection. You, you heard him introduce myrrh and frankincense and you're surrounded by gold yep. in all parts of this tabernacle motif. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Think of what those wise men did in Matthew chapter 2 in their offerings to the Christ child and the beautiful connections, what they see him as, this fulfillment as, as their savior, the one who is going to go through the veil and open up the way for all of us to come back into the presence of God again. It's the, the symbolism is beautiful on many, many levels. And then you have the incense that's, you know, you've got this altar and they're offering prayer on this altar uh, and that's what the, the Psalms says that the incense represents and also Revelation that this represents the prayers of the saints ascending to God. And so there's prayers being offered right before the veil and it's in essence preparatory before we can actually go all the way through the process of coming back into the presence of the Lord, which again is through the priest because Israel is not doing this, but they're offering prayers at this altar. Um, and I just find it, all of these things are beautiful symbols of how we ourselves must progress through the temple. And isn't it amazing? Yeah, isn't it amazing that as, as the priest is standing there at the altar of incense with that smoke rising representing all the prayers of Israel, all the hopes, all the desires, all of their petitions, here's this veil. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10 one more time. Listen to this insight and picture the priest standing there with this veil separating him from the presence of God. Oh, and by the way, keep in mind, only the high priest. Now, back in Moses' day, Moses and Aaron, the high priest, but after Moses is gone, it's just the high priest who gets to go into the Holy of Holies. And how often does that happen? Once a year. One time a year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, he would get to go in, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But listen to this wording. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way 
which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Isn't that a beautiful symbol for us, that that veil hanging there represents the flesh of Christ, our High Priest, who who opens that veil at his crucifixion, it's ripped from top to bottom in the temple in Jerusalem, opening up the way so we can enter in with boldness through his blood which was shed for us. It's no longer, God never intended for this to be just an experience for one man, once a year, with a very specific calling to get to go into the presence of God. He has thrown wide open the gates to heaven, and he invites all to come in to the presence of God because he is our great high priest who went before us, not to offer sacrifice for his own sins because he didn't have any, but to open the way through the shedding of his own blood for our sins to be remitted and to be able to come into his presence. And and I also love the fact that you think about the sacrament bread. I find it fascinating. We don't cut the bread. We tear the bread and it's to represent his torn flesh and that symbol that in essence we are entering through the Savior because again, if you remember, the clothing of the high priest is basically the same fabric that's the veil. So the high priest is wearing, it's as if he's wearing part of the veil almost. And so he's standing there. We must go through the Savior but it's because of the torn flesh of the Savior, the torn veil, the opened way that we can now be able to go back into the presence of the Lord. Which, by the way, adds a lot more meaning for me to Jesus' declaration that you already referenced earlier when he says, I am the door and I am the way. Those two two analogies that he used, they're, they're hauntingly beautiful that he was willing to come and, and walk this path, make the way for us to be able to come into the presence of God. Now, we, we come back into chapter 36 now with this overview, and all of the people were, were asked to make these sacrifices, bring these things. Well, how did they respond? Overabundance, so much so that they basically said, stop, please, we have enough. Which is interesting for Israel because we always say that they were, you know, wicked and things like that, but when they were asked to give, they gave. And isn't that neat to be able to point out some of the elements of the story where they actually came through in abundance? So in chapter 37 is where you get more details about the actual construction process of the tabernacle, the fabrics, and the furnishings inside of the tabernacle. So, chapter 37, you get the ark with its mercy seat and the cherubim. Cherubim means two cherubs. We would say cherubs, but in the the Hebrew, it's just more than one cherub. So, two cherubim, and you get the vessels, the table, the candlestick, the altar of incense, and the oil. That's all in chapter 37. And then you get chapter 38, which is the altar of sacrifice out here in the courtyard being made, and they're um, numbering how many people have made offerings. And the number that they come up with in the the King James Version of the Bible is over 603,000 men who have made contributions to this. 
to this building project. Again, not because the Lord needed this building to be made, but because they desperately needed this building for a place to be able to have God's presence in their midst, in the middle of the camp of Israel. And then we get over to chapter 39 where it starts to talk about the holy garments made for Aaron. So let's bring on this, this replica, and you can hear those bells jingling as Daniel moves that into place, and I'm going to slide this to the side, and uh, Daniel will walk us through some of the details in this high priest clothing, which, by the way, he made from scratch on a little Lego machine. Uh, kind of on a Lego machine. I mean, this is the part of it, the thread that I used, um, and I have a whole I have two videos on this and a lot of other videos that I've done on this, but this one, because you have to have all the different colors associated with it, and I was trying to figure out how do I make the colors combine, this is the best way that I came up with was using Legos. So it takes the red, the blue, the purple, the gold, and then you've got that into an individual thread, and then you're taking it and then I loomed it into the fabric, which is right here. And so just briefly, keep in mind again that one of the titles that is given to Jesus Christ is that he is the great high priest. And the symbolism is associated with what his mission is and what he's doing. So you've got the first, you've got four different pieces of clothing that all priests would wear, and then four additional pieces, so for a total of eight, that would be combined for the high priest. So you would have undergarments or under breeches that would be worn. You would have the white robe, you'd have a white sash, and you'd have the white turban. And so that would be your four pieces for all priests. So again, they're wearing this, sacrificing, cutting throats, blood all the, over the place, and they're basically in white. And then the high priest to show the significance of his calling because there's only one at any given time he wears four additional golden garments, sometimes called, because of the fact that they each have gold within it somehow. So you've got the blue robe. Blue can often be a symbol of heaven, and so it could represent that his power is coming from heaven. And it's got bells and pomegranates along the bottom. And we won't be able to go into a lot of these details, but again, if, if you're interested in learning more, you can watch some of my videos um, then you would have the ephod, and this would be loomed out of that beautiful fabric, again, and that has two shoulder pieces that come up here, and you've got two stones, and on each stone is six names, so a total of 12, and then you also have the breastplate, which is connected here with the 12 names of the tribes of Israel. And for me, one of the most beautiful symbols here is the fact, and, and this is directly in Exodus, where it talks about that the high priest is to carry or bear Israel on his shoulders and against his chest or against his heart. And you think about the symbolism of the Savior. Um, when I was giving a, a presentation to some youth, I asked them what they thought about that, and I loved what one of the young men said. He said, it's the Lord is teaching us that he doesn't just carry us, he doesn't just carry our burden, but he loves us. And how often do we maybe do one or the other, but we don't do both, but the Savior does both. 
And then the last piece is the golden crown, which says holiness to the Lord. And that's actually where we get the phrase on all modern day temples. It wasn't on the tabernacle, it wasn't on Solomon's temple, it was on the crown of the high priest. And so the high priest is wearing these clothing and each of these colors could represent different attributes of the savior. Blue can represent heaven, red can represent sacrifice, death, purple can represent royalty, uh, gold, divinity, white, purity. And so I love the fact that in essence you have the high priest that is wearing these colors that could represent the attributes of the Savior. And then we as Israel are bound to the Lord. We are made at one with his attributes. It's almost as if because of his grace, because of his atonement, we now become at one with him, bound and fastened to him. And we are beautiful stones. I love that as well, that it's not just papyrus or wood, it's beautiful, beautiful gemstones. Um, but one interesting thing about this is the high priest is not wearing this clothing on the Day of Atonement, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. He's only wearing the white. But at all other times when he's in the tabernacle, he's representing this. So he's standing out and he's showing how he represents the people. And so through the clothing, through the symbols that they see on the clothing, it helps teach Israel that he is their representative, that he is special, he is somebody significant. So some of you might be by, be surprised by that insight that Daniel just shared that in antiquity this holiness to the Lord or the house of the Lord, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't on the eastern gate of the tabernacle or on Solomon's temple but, but on this high priest. And keep in mind the Savior's um, doing today with all of us what he always originally intended was for everybody to have this, this opportunity to come into the presence of God. Isn't this amazing? When you look at, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul writes his, his letter to those Corinthian saints, when he says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. When you think about all of these chapters we're covering from Exodus and all of the symbolism and all of the effort that went into building a tabernacle, I love Paul's perspective here of saying, don't miss the symbol. All of, all of this, all of that is a simple outward symbol for what God is trying to do with you if you'll let him. He's, he's making it so that you don't have to go to a building to see holiness to the Lord. He's trying to help each of us become the embodiment of holiness, of sacrifice, of faith, of true repentance, of walking by the light of the Spirit and participating with the Lord in, in the sacrament and in prayer and scripture study and in knocking at the veil and seeking and pleading for his guidance. So I love in all these symbols to not just see them as 3,500-year-old practices, but rather the Lord's attention to detail that we can see in our own lives today in, a, in many ways in the gospel. Yeah, so let's actually now talk about the Day of Atonement and the significance of it. I'll kind of push Aaron off the, 
the screen because he's not even going to be wearing this clothing when he on the Day of Atonement. We won't go into a lot of detail on this, but within the Ark of the Covenant, there would be three different items. There would be the rod of Aaron, the rod of Aaron that blossomed. There would be a bull of manna, maybe something kind of like this. Um, and then there would also be the Ten Commandments that would be in that. And in essence, you've got the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of the Lord would dwell and the high priest is coming into the Holy of Holies only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And it's interesting as you study and, and look at how that event happens, it, there's so many symbols and connections to the Savior. Um, again, I, I have a video on this as well. We're going to show some of the reenactments that we did of the Day of Atonement uh, to be able to kind of help you visualize this. But the very first thing that they would do is they would have two goats, and this is a way simplified version of what they would do, but they would have two goats that they would bring in. Um, and this is a day that you have to remember, in essence, the only day that they can come into the presence of the Lord is this day when they make this special sacrifice and ritual that's happening. And so all of these connections are showing that this is the process to come in because every other day they're maybe doing part of it. They might burn at the, or, you know, light the candlestick or burn the incense at the altar because that's what they're doing every day. Eat the bread of the table of show bread on the Sabbath. But on the Day of Atonement, it's like the fulfillment of the entire, the culmination of the tabernacle. And so on this day, the high priest is coming into the tabernacle. But before he can do that, because he has sin himself, there must be a sacrifice. So they bring two goats. They cast lots. So in other words, they, they have a box and they put two different uh, names in it and they, they cast for one and one lot goes to the scapegoat and the other lot goes to the other goat. And the one goat that is not the scapegoat is then killed. So again, they would take this, slit the throat of the animal, uh, take the blood, and that blood would be combined with uh, another sacrifice that would be done. And that blood is then brought in after they they've would first burn incense at the in the Holy of Holies. Then they bring blood in and they sprinkle it on the altar. So let me read the verse here. Uh, again, I was talking about how the, the priest, the high priest, is coming into the Holy of Holies. Uh, in This is in Leviticus chapter 16, which the whole chapter of 16 is on the Day of Atonement. So that's one of the assignments that's for Come Follow Me. And in verse 12 it says, And he shall take a censer full of burning coals, of fire from the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. And then once he's done that, then he would take the blood from the, um, the sacrifice, and it says, then he shall take of the blood of the bullock, which is basically a, a cow, a male cow, and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. So that's the, the he enters once with the incense, 
then he enters again with the blood of the bullock, and then he's going to enter a third time with the blood of the goat and the bullock. They would, they would mix it together. And then that, that's put on the ark, and you think about it, the, the word atonement in Hebrew is kafar, and that means to cover. And so on this day, he is literally taking blood and covering or making atonement, kafar, over the Ark of the Covenant. And so now the mercy seat, the place where the presence of the Lord dwells, is being covered and atonement is made so that Israel, symbolically through the high priest, can come into the presence of the Lord with the high priest. Um, and then you've got, again, we, we have these two goats. We've only talked about the one goat that's killed, uh, and then he is brought into, the, the blood is brought into the Holy of Holies. But then there's this second goat, and this second goat would have a red ribbon tied around it, and it's the scapegoat, and it's brought out into the wilderness, and then it's just let go. And for me, there's a beautiful symbol here. You think about, in particular, in Jerusalem, just east of the temple is the Garden of Gethsemane. And the goat, during the time of Jerusalem, would be brought out up to the Mount of Olives, taken past the Mount of Olives into the desert, and then let go. And in essence, what it is, is as they are placing their hands upon the head, transferring the sins of all of Israel onto the scapegoat, this innocent goat now dies without comfort and help and, and safety. And it basically is just turned to the ravages of, of the environment and wolves and things like that. And that you have both aspects of the atonement, that the blood brings us into the presence of the Lord but also the Savior is the scapegoat, that he has all of our sins placed upon him. And that it's just a beautiful symbol that it's only because of the Savior, only because of his sacrifice, both through his suffering, but also through his death, that we are able to come back into the presence of the Lord. And it's only because of that. We are not worthy on our own. We cannot come in. But you look here, everything points to the Savior. He is the sacrifice. He is the living water that cleanses us. He is the gate, the door that we enter through, both here and here. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the reason our prayers are answered before the Lord, that ascend before the veil. He is the veil that separates us but is divided and opened so that as we go through him, we are able to then come into the presence of the Lord. And then he is the great high priest who carries us. We don't walk in to the Holy of Holies. We are carried and it is because of the perfection of the Savior, the perfection of the Lord and his grace and his atonement that we have that opportunity to be able to come back into the presence of the Lord. Thank you, Daniel, for the reminder of how the tabernacle and temples today are meant to point us to Jesus Christ. As we open back up into Leviticus chapter 19, let's look at how this starts. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the children 
Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So that's the opening statement we have in Leviticus 19. If you look at your text in the King James translation, you have all these kind of backward P's that mean it's a paragraph marker, and these are all setting off distinct and specific expectations for what God wants his people to do to show that they are holy. We've talked a number of times about the importance of the covenantal connection. God wants to be our God. He wants us to be his people in this covenantal relationship. He's always been faithful, always been loyal to us, and he gives us instructions about how we can be faithful and loyal to him. And if you want another summary of what back in the time of the ancient Israelites, God expected of them to be holy, to be loyal, to be faithful, this chapter summarizes these key expectations that God had. And we've, we find in Exodus 20 a similar list of commandments. We call it the Ten Commandments there. But here, God gives even more details and instructions about, here's what I expect my people to do so that they're holy like I am. And we become holy by joining him in that relationship and being faithful and loyal. Now, sometimes we make a mistake. Sometimes we don't live up to these expectations. But if we choose on a regular basis to be loyal to God and say, I will try yet again, we're invited back into that relationship. So as we learned about the mercy seat, God has this everlasting mercy. He's always welcoming us back to say, try again, work at it again. It's okay. You can keep working to be with me because I want to be with you. So I see that one of the key takeaways from Leviticus 19 is instructions for us to be holy as God is holy. That's very helpful, Taylor. And as we finish chapter 19, we, we've done things a little bit out of order. We're now going to go back and pick up Leviticus chapter 1 and then, and then be finished. Isn't it interesting that if you, if you add up all of the specific commandments given in, in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, you come up with 613 specific commandments. By the time Jesus is born, that 613 is going to have grown into thousands of, of traditions that are kept very strictly uh, by practicing Jews under the, the Pharisees' tradition of interpreting the Law of Moses. And isn't it amazing that when Jesus speaks of the Law of Moses, he, he doesn't speak in negative terms, and, and he's not He's not speaking in a derogatory way towards the commandments that had been given by him to these people 1,500 years before, roughly. He says, I fulfill all of it, all, all of those commandments, every, not a jot or a tittle, the smallest markings on their, on their, some of their little letters is going to fall by the wayside. I'm going to fulfill all of it. And I love this concept that you keep sharing, Taylor, this idea that the Savior's role isn't to do away with this, it's to fulfill it and to give us even higher connecting points with the Lord. It's interesting, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, in some ways that is the update to all these covenantal instructions. And God, Jesus, interesting, he says, if your righteousness or your loyalty to me does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you have no way of getting into heaven. So Jesus does not say that the Pharisees are wrong to want to know what all those covenantal instructions are and to live them. In fact, let's pause there. 
That's part of why the Jews wanted to know what all the commandments were. How can you show love to somebody if you don't know what they care about? If somebody in your life who you care about gave you a list of things, hey, if you do these 10 things, I will know you care about me, and you wanted to show that you cared about them, you would want to know that list and memorize it and be really clear about doing it. And the Jews were loving and loyal to God. And what Jesus said is, good job, but sometimes you're missing the point. I want that loyalty to be in your heart and not just going through the motions. And that's where the Sermon on the Mount was, I'm gonna invite you guys to take this to the next level. And this is the, the updated covenantal instructions. So now let's finish by turning back to Leviticus chapter 1. Uh, th this chapter contains instructions for the, the people and for the priests on how to perform three different types of sacrifices in the tabernacle, which later on translates into Solomon's temple and then much later on uh, into Herod's temple, we call it the second temple. You'll, you'll notice that the entire book of Leviticus, Levi is the tribe who is performing all of these priestly functions. They're the only tribe who holds the priesthood back in that day. And so you could look at this third book of Mo Moses called Leviticus as kind of a the priesthood handbook of instructions. This is how to, how to officiate all of these, these different ordinances and sacrifices that are required within the law of Moses. So you'll notice in chapter 1 you get the how to perform a burnt offering of a bullock or a bull, the burnt offering of a sheep, and the offering of fowls. And each of these has beautiful symbolism to tie us, or rather to point us forward from this time towards that great and last sacrifice that is going to be performed by Jesus Christ. So let's begin with the, the sacrifice of the bull. Verse 3, look at the symbolism here. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Daniel spoke earlier about that idea that the, the Israelite bringing this offering to the door is required to perform that sacrifice of his own free will. I think that's an important, this voluntary aspect, it's not, nobody's coming, none of the Levites are coming out into the camp of Israel saying, I pick you, you have to go get a bull. It's, you're making the sacrifice because you're, this is a way for you to say, I love the Lord more than I love what I'm sacrificing. And the, this isn't inconsequential, to, to sacrifice a bull is very significant off a, a very significant offering. Bulls were the most powerful thing in nature that these ancient Jews knew outside of weather phenomena like earthquakes or, or lightning. It's a bull, and they're very expensive. They're hard to acquire. They're hard to tame. So it's some significant symbolism here that you're taking the most valuable living thing you can get access to, the most powerful living thing that you've ever encountered, and you're voluntarily giving it away. And the word before in Hebrew literally means in, at the face of God. So it's really significant that the tabernacle is intended to help you to know that you are actually in the presence of the Lord face to face. 
and that you are giving away symbolically your sins so you can enter into his presence. Now you'll notice as we shift gears over to the sheep in verse 10, there's some differences here with lambs and sheep. And if his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep, or of the goats for a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring it, a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar. So if it's a sheep, you bring it in here, and north is this side of the temple. So you kill the animal north of the altar. So if you if you see uh, depictions of the temple of Solomon or Herod's temple, you'll notice this this large altar on the left, and then you'll notice some benches and some, some area on the right where all of the animals um, in this particular type of sacrifice are killed, where they give their life. It's fascinating that if you look at Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, a rough bird's eye view of Jerusalem, the temple is here. Daniel already talked about the fact that Gethsemane is to the east, the Kidron Valley runs here, and up here is the Mount of Olives, and the garden called Gethsemane is here to the east. And to the north of Jerusalem, the north of the altar, it's in this area where most traditions hold that Jesus was crucified. The, the Lamb of God was slain northward of the altar, on the north side of the altar symbolically, and so you get this connection to all these, these lambs and goats that are going to be killed through many, many generations of Jewish practice from us, from our perspective today, looking back in time, we can see this beautiful, hauntingly beautiful Christ-like overlay of what's what's happening there. Yeah, and lambs, of course, are docile and they are humble and meek and they're trusting. And so we have these different symbols of things that are being sacrificed all pointing to Jesus. We also notice as we're about to move in to talk about the sacrifice of the fowls or the birds, that God is actually making accommodations for different levels of wealth. God blesses people with different levels of wealth, and for those who have been given more, he expects more. Maybe a bull from somebody who has been very blessed to the Lord materially, somebody with a sheep who maybe have a little bit less, and those who are poor with a fowl or with birds. And so it's interesting that God accommodates people based on the circumstances that he has blessed them with. So now we shift down to verse 14. And if the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the Lord be of fowls, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons. You'll notice that when you bring that those, those doves or those uh, pigeons in and give them to the priest, the priest has to kill the fowl very, very quickly, and then in verse 16 it says, and he shall pluck away his crop with his feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east part by the place of the ashes. So coming back here, the east part, this is where the ashes and where the plucked feathers of the fowl offerings are going to be cast here. You'll notice it's easiest to clean that part 
and to, to keep the tabernacle area clean or later on the temple area clean. In the temple, they actually could wash it down into the Kidron Valley where Jesus himself would have bled and his blood may have also run down that same area. You get, you get the symbolism here. Now, if you have a, a turtle dove or a pigeon and you just killed it and you quickly crop out all of its feathers so that it doesn't have any feathers left and you throw those on the east side of the altar, and then if you were to look back at that little bird, what would you likely see? You would probably see a little drop of blood in every pore of that little fowl. That animal will have bled from every pore, and you crop those feathers and cast them to the east. I, I think it's, once again, hauntingly beautiful in symbolic ways that to the east is the place where we, we read his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. And that's verified in the Book of Mormon as well as the Doctrine and Covenants that he bled from every pore as part of his infinite agony. Now, isn't it, isn't it uh, beautiful that at 40 days old, Jesus is taken into the temple, which is keeping with Jewish custom that for uh, uh, your firstborn male, you need to take him and present him at the temple before the Lord and make an offering for him. And the offering is a lamb. You're supposed to offer a lamb. But if you're too poor to afford a lamb, which Taylor's already alluded to, the Lord provides this provision of being able to bring something much more affordable, and in this case, two turtle doves. So you can picture Mary carrying that 40-day-old infant, the, the baby Jesus, as she brings him into the court of the women of the temple, and then Joseph going a little further, ascending these semicircular steps, going through the Nicanor Gate and delivering these two birds to the priest for the sacrifice, uh, the symbolism for me is sweet in this case that we would think, wait, you're supposed to bring a lamb to the temple, but they were too poor to bring a lamb, so they had to bring these two turtle doves for their offering. But some of you have picked up on the fact that Mary did bring a lamb to the temple that day. It just wasn't his time for the sacrifice yet. He would one day be sacrificed for all of Israel and all of the world and for all of us, and specifically for you in this context, that he would become that great and last sacrifice, that all of these symbols would culminate with that ultimate great and last sacrifice of he who was the firstborn, male, without blemish, and innocent and pure, would willingly and freely give his life of his own free will and uh, allow himself to be taken as that ultimate sacrifice for us. That's beautiful. I am so grateful that the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, have been so lovingly preserved over the centuries that we can better understand Jesus and his love and sacrifice for us. And for me, as we talked about uh, a little while ago, I love the symbols that all throughout the tabernacle, all throughout the law, it all points to the Savior. 
He's in every part of it. And we have to look for it. We have to find it. But I think there's a purpose in that. You think about the temple. How many of us understand the temple endowment? I would say basically none of us or none of us might be a better way to say it. But I think, again, there's a purpose in that, that because of the depth and the beauty of the symbols and the connections that we can make, that we can always be returning to try to find the Savior. That all throughout the tabernacle and all throughout our modern day temples, everything points to the Savior Jesus Christ and to his sacrifice that takes us back into the presence of the Lord. What a beautiful way to end this, this idea of coming into the presence of God through the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. We want you to know that we know that he lives and that he is mighty to save and he's merciful to save and we hope that you know how much you're loved and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>